Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke and the 8th chapter. We continue our exposition of this Gospel. We'll pick up at verse 27, uh, or 26 rather. Uh, You might remember from last time that uh, we have just seen the care of Jesus Christ for his disciples and his power over the storm. And we began a section, as I had mentioned, in Luke's gospel where the theme really is the power of Jesus Christ exercised in care and love for his people. Power over storms, power over the devil today, power over death, power over disease. As this chapter unfolds, we will see more and more of that. Now, this text, which is quite familiar to us concerning the demoniac that is possessed by legion, we will consider in two sermons as it is very rich. So we'll just begin to consider this text today. Uh, We will consider verses 26 to 35, but I will read down to verse 40. Well, with that introduction then, let us now hear the word of God. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. These are the very words of God. Let us receive them as they are. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he was he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city, how great things Jesus had done unto him. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching now.
Oh, our gracious God, we come to see and discover the wonderful things that you have to say of our Lord Jesus in the Scripture. And we come to hear these things preached. And so we pray that your Spirit would be upon the man who would preach, the servant who preaches your holy word. Father, without the Spirit of the Lord, we would not benefit from the preaching of God. And so we pray that the Spirit would would arrest the preacher, that he would be taken up by the Spirit of God to preach the word of God of a truth, not preaching his own thoughts and mind, but rather the mind of God. And we pray that the people of God here assembled would be receptive to the preached word, that they would know the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him in their hearts. Oh God, only you can do these things. And so we pray now that you would help me to speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, for the glory of God. Amen. Well, it is the case that natural man is completely under the thraldom of both Satan and sin. This can be hard to discern outwardly, but inwardly, the natural man's heart is captive to this great power. Jesus said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. That's John 8, verse 44. You know, you just have to ask the question, really. Why are we liars by nature? Even our youngest children here have lied, haven't they? All of us have lied in some sense. You have to ask the question, why do we also come into this world hating both God and hating our neighbor. We've all had hatred in our hearts. We've all wished other men would be put away. Why is that? It's because we do the lusts of our father, the devil. We shy away from this truth, but this is the truth of God's word. Boys and girls, children, when you lie, when you hate, when you despise God, you are doing the lusts of the devil. Now, while we shy away from this truth, in our text, this is unavoidable. Here is a man demon-possessed to such a degree you cannot help but see it. Here he is in misery, in agony, even chained up because of what he might do to himself and as well to others. In him is really a naked, and really you're going to see he is a naked man. Uh, Here is a naked portrayal of the powers of hell which completely enslave the natural man. But here, if you can see that there is such hopelessness in the man's condition, here comes the Son of God through the storm. And we see how effortless it is for Jesus to free a man so greatly under sin's dominion. In our text, we have an illustration of another text of Scripture, the the, We've talked about this. The Gospels and all narratives really illustrate theology for us, doesn't it? You know, 1 John 3.8 gives us the theology of the Son of God. He that committeth sin is of the devil, which is what I've just said. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. But praise God for this, boys and girls. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Here is Jesus in our text to show us the truth. That he has come to crush the devil and to free us from the devil's dominion. To free us utterly and totally 
even to restore us to fellowship and communion with God, freeing us from sin's dominion and restoring us to communion with God to the point that this man who was just moments ago possessed by thousands of demons is found at the feet of Jesus Christ. Gives us hope, this text does, that he who was prophesied in Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent has come into the world to destroy what Satan has done to us in the fall. Here in our text, we see our promised Messiah, the Christ, who would be several chapters from now, bruised for our iniquities, and yet having the victory over Satan. And we see in this text that if the Son of God has come to set you free, to set you free from your bondage to sin and Satan, the, the text says that all the powers of hell will fall down before him. And as John's Gospel says, and the Son will set you free indeed. There is tremendous hope here in this text for sinners who are under the grip of sin and Satan. And so with that to introduce our theme, our theme is simply this, that Christ frees us from the power of sin and Satan. And we'll consider that under the three headings on your bulletin. First is to consider a captive man. Second, to consider a powerful Savior. And third is to consider a renewed man. First, a captive man. Well, after the storm that we had considered last time, our Lord comes ashore to meet this pitiable and miserable man. He's a demoniac. That expression, boys and girls, means a man possessed by demons. And demons are fallen angels. Uh, King James calls them devils, but they are demons. These demons are those who followed Satan in his rebellion against God, the the fallen angels of which Satan is their ringleader. Boys and girls, what you have to see out of our text, because the culture and society are probably going to tell you otherwise, demons and angels, they are real, and they are real spiritual beings, and they exist as surely as God exists. They are not make-believe They're not the product of what some might call uh, an ancient mind. They are spiritual powers in the world today. So we must understand that, that the Bible treats Satan and the demons as real beings. That said, let's pick up our narrative in verse 27. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. This man was really quite pitiable. He had devils, Luke says, a long time. For most of his existence, this man suffered. Beyond showing us this man was in abject misery, Why does Luke record the fact that he was under bondage for a long time? Well, there are probably several reasons, but perhaps for you today, you must understand that this was no stunt. This was no setup. This man was not planted in the audience as many con artists might do today. The whole town would know and find out that Jesus performed a true miracle. They knew this man. They knew the torment he had been in for a long time. But also that you, yourself, 
might see and believe that Jesus has the power to free you from sin and Satan. Because this man suffered and nothing, nothing, not his chains, nothing at all could free him but the Son of God. And to show the great impossibility of the man to be freed by any other but Jesus Christ, you read that more than one demon had possessed him. Now, boys and girls, just one demon. One, one demon is, is greater than all the powers of all the men on earth combined. It would be a terrifying prospect for you to be possessed by a single demon. But thousands possess this man. He's beyond any of the powers of mere man to free him. What man could free him of thousands of demons? Verse 30, Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. Now, as you might know, a Roman legion of soldiers was about 6,000 strong, 6,000 men. And in Mark 5.13, now, so you might say, well, maybe this is hyperbole, maybe there may be more than one demon, but surely not thousands. No, this is not hyperbole. In Mark 5.13, when Mark recounts this same event, when Jesus sends the demons into the pigs, he notes that there were 2,000 pigs that were taken up by the demons, showing, yes, that thousands of demons had somehow possessed this man. His name, Legion, is not hyperbole, but a terrifying reality for the man of the many thousands of unclean spirits that tormented him day and night, night and day. And before we continue any further than this, I want to reassert what I had said before, that this man uh, has a connection with us, that his condition is a visible outward manifestation of our inward reality outside of Jesus Christ. He represents the natural bondage and the total bondage that man is born into, a total bondage to sin and Satan. That is not hyperbole either, friends, though you might think it is so if you do not know your Bible. But Ephesians 2, and we're going to use Ephesians 2 as sort of a, uh, Ephesians in general, as sort of a parallel to this narrative. Again, this is theology illustrated. But listen to what Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says. And you hath he quickened or brought to life who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to, and here it is, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or conduct in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The prince of the power of air, the devil. Did you hear that? It is according to him that all men walk by nature. Maybe it is not as overt outwardly as it is with this man, but all are born into the enslavement of sin's power. Romans 3, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 continues, and think of it when we look on the man's condition. Their throat is as an open sepulcher, a tomb. With their tongues they have used deceit. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the natural man. This is us, friends, apart from Jesus Christ. And our blindness is not in seeing that that is the case. God says the difference in our captivity to sin and the demoniacs is just a matter of degree. But essentially, we are the same. And essentially, we are just as powerless to free ourselves from sin's dominion. And if our conscience torments us, as this man was tormented by these demons... If your conscience is tormented, if if you've been tormented by your sin, as this man was tormented by the devils, you are just as powerless to release yourself from what torments you, friends. You are just as powerless to free yourself from sin's grasp and grip as this man was from legion. The Son of God must set you free if you are to be freed. So with this understanding... Let us connect his specific miseries with our miseries. First, consider that the demons had made this man like a beast. That is sin's work in you, to make you animal-like. It makes you less than a man, sin does. It makes you like an animal. For instance, you see that this man possessed was naked and without clothes. He had become like a beast, hadn't he? Think of it. This man was stripped of his clothing, and he was in this condition. And if you look around our society today, you are going to find nakedness and immodesty everywhere. It is a great evil in our society. This is the enslaving power of sin on a soul. You know, if you, some of us drive from Dallas proper, uh, and the, the times I go down there, uh, if you have driven here from Dallas proper, you would probably blush to look at certain billboards. Today, you cannot even take your children to the public swimming pool without having to avert their eyes. People seem like they would have more clothes on if they were dressed in their underwear. It's a sad thing. Where does this come from? It comes from the uncleanness of sin. Their glory is their shame, as the scripture says. When you commit lewdness, friends, whether in your mind, in your mind, or externally, that is sin's captivity on you. It is making you less than a man or a woman. And our society, it, it, it is showing us more and more that we as a people are under this kind of captivity. Sin, this kind of sin especially, is called freedom. But it is really bondage. Ask anyone who's tried to escape it. And it is truly bondage. And it makes you like a beast. And the text says that this man was not in his right mind. You see, that's what sin does to us. We can't even perceive right and wrong. We don't know our left hand from our right. We don't know what is true and what is false. We don't know what is wholesome and what is evil. We call what is evil good and what is good evil. We are not in our right mind. Our mind is so blinded by sin. And we need then this book to reveal what is righteousness to us. Because by nature, we are coming into this world because of original sin, utterly confused over what is right and wrong. Second, he was without a home and he lived in the tombs. 
What a dreadful, dreadful existence this was, friends. You know, he was living among the bones of the dead. This is an apt description of the sinner's spiritual condition without Christ as well. Totally and utterly dead spiritually. Ephesians 2, you might remember when I read it, said we were dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Or in Ezekiel 37, what's the illustration of the sinner dead in sins and trespasses? Dry bones, utterly and totally dead. And this is the sinner's habitat, life among the dead. We were once among the spiritually dead, and we despised the land of the living. We despised those who were born again. We couldn't come into a church because we had no interest in hearing of the word of the living God because we were dead. Those things we despised. We despised those who were born again. We made fun of them. We despised those who are alive to God. We called them Puritans and uh, pietists could not bear their company, their holy conversation, their manner of life. The things they did, we mocked. Their love for God, their hatred of sin, these things we despised. I'm not so far removed from my former way of life, friends, maybe 13 years. I remember loving the dead when I was dead in my own trespasses and sins. The truth is the dead congregate with the dead. But if you are counted among the living, born again with faith, a vibrant, vital faith in Jesus Christ, how could you live among the tombs? How could you live among the dead? Boys and girls, if you are born again, if you are spiritually regenerate, how difficult it would be for you to live among the unregenerate. Yes, we seek out the lost. We love them. We minister to them. We show them good. We show Christ out of the Scriptures, and and we do good to all men. But the born again are meant to dwell with and associate with the living, with believers and not those that are dead. This man, he had no home, the Scripture says. And that is what the sinner is like. They might have a place of residence, but they don't have an eternal home. Where does the sinner apart from Christ go? Where do we go apart from Christ? We go to outer darkness. We go to a place of death and damnation. But Jesus Christ says to those who are alive that in his Father's house are many mansions. And he goes to prepare a place for us where we will dwell with him forever. The living will live with the Lord Jesus and ever be the Lord's. Third, Sin was destroying his life. Mark 5, you might want to read it. This is the parallel text in Mark. You would read that this man was crying out and he cut himself with stones. The man's agony is so great. And there are some sinners who don't understand that they're under sin's captivity. Their agony is so great that they cut themselves and they commit other sins of great harm, self-harm. Because they just want the misery of sin to end. You know, studies are showing that incidents of self-harm are tremendously on the rise. Uh, One recent study said there was a, a, a 2x increase between 2019 and 2020 in 13 to 18 year olds that uh, are committing self-harm. What have they been hearing all their lives? 
that sin is freedom, sin is pleasure, sin is joy. And what are they doing? They are trying to kill themselves. Sin will cause us to harm ourselves. And you see that in so many ways. And if you are in torment, let me just deal with self-harm for a moment. If you are in torment and you feel the first inclination towards self-harm, you need to cry out, but you need to cry out to Jesus Christ for deliverance, friends. Do not let sin and Satan torment you, any of you, to the point where you would want to be killed. Because you have to understand, sin and Satan want you dead. Why? Well, remember, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. His goal in having Adam and Eve pursue sin was to murder them. Why does he despise you so much? Why does he want you to harm yourself? Because he hates God. And he hates that you have worth in God's eyes. That you are made in the very image of God. And he wants you dead. So does sin. Cry out to the Lord because your life has value. Just as this man's life had value to Jesus, call out to him in faith and repentance and seek help if you must from elders and even those who can help in other ways. When all this, what we find in this man's misery is the destructive and miserable nature of sin. You see it all around you. You know it, but you won't admit it when you yourself are gripped with sin. Sin destroys us. It mocks us. It hates the image of God. You think of common sins in our society. Drunkenness, drug use. Are men not being turned into animals? Look at a meth user. And you find someone who is becoming less and less like a man or a woman. What is promiscuity, which promises freedom, brought us venereal diseases and abortions, lives totally destroyed. And of course, first table violations as the one that we confessed this morning, such as idolatry, are the ultimate destruction of the soul. Consider Psalm 115. Speaking of idols, they have hands, but they handle not. Feet they have, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. Here is the destruction of the man in idolatry. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Do not be deceived. There is not a shred, not a shred of blessedness, friend, in sin. It is a destroyer. God warned Cain at the very beginning of the book that sin desires thee, and its desire is to consume thee. Consume, not bless. These demons are just a personification of sin. You know, Sin is far worse than a legion of, angel, of devils. Ralph Venning had it right when he said, sin is a much greater evil than Satan. Sin made the devil what he is. Sin is a far greater evil than Satan. And the thing about sin is though it is a misery to our souls, unlike this demoniac, we are often eager to pursue our captor. And we delight in it. And we will not cry out to the Lord for help. This is what makes sin such a worse captor than Satan himself. Because we are given over to our sin, and we enjoy our sin, and we believe we're getting pleasure from it. And what we don't realize is when we pursue our sin, we are entertaining the devourer of our souls. And not just our souls, all the souls that we touch, sin devours them as well. 
Which is why, fourthly, this man needed restraint. He was bound with chains and fetters, verse 29. For oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. He was likely bound to protect others from himself. Could you imagine a man consumed by devils? He was likely going to harm others. This is a great illustration, really, though, of the civil use of the law of God. This is what the civil use of the law of God is for. It's meant to restrain sinners from utterly destroying society and why it has a good purpose in the land. Romans 13 says the civil magistrate bears the sword to punish evildoers. This is why men do not go on murderous rampages and wholesale thievery as they might, because it restrains us, the law of God does. Without the civil use of the law, there's no telling. One of the most frightening things is when the announcer gets on the television and says, we are now under martial law, isn't it? Because the law of God has a blessed, wholesome civil use. Its restraining power is seen in the man's chains. But let's get the straight, friends, even as we bless the Lord for the civil use of the law. Those chains could never save the man. Those chains could only restrain the man. The law of God is the same way. It cannot save us, even as it restrains us. And even, you think of this, his chains could not totally constrain the man being under Satan's power. It says he often broke his fetters and he fled into the wilderness. This is the same way the natural man chafes at the law of God. Have you ever told a sinner who is apart from Christ to keep all the commandments of God? Oh, they do. They'll laugh at you. They'll scorn you. They'll mock you. Psalm 2.3, sinners say to Jehovah and his Christ, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us which is what this man was doing. You see, though the law is good, the Bible is clear, it cannot save us. And it must not, and never must be your hope. That's the folly, right? You think of moralistic religion that says, do good, follow the Ten Commandments, and then you will be saved somehow. That's impossible, friends. Your sin nature will seek to burst the bonds of the law. The apostle himself said in Romans 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I do, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. This is the law of God apart from Christ. So with all of that, then, it becomes very clear to us. This man was living a life without hope. No man could save him. All others could do is hope to shackle him. He had no no program of self-help either. His despair and his hopelessness shown in his crying out and cutting himself. In every way, a sinner must be brought to this point in their life, though. A point of hopelessness where they are open, their mind is open to seeing that there is no hope for them outside of a Savior. Without this understanding of who we are, you will not look to God for a Savior So we praise the Lord that in our text, a Savior has come to free us from our bondage. And it is Jesus, then, we consider in our second heading, a powerful Savior. The first thing we want to remember, because it has been several weeks, is that the Lord Jesus, 
was deliberate in coming for this man. This was no chance encounter like he came to the seashore and and he said, what is that over there? Is that a man that I hear? No. You remember last time. He was very deliberate about saying, let us go to the other side. He had a purpose in coming. And now we find out why in this text. He had come specifically for this poor man, for this poor soul. What did he say in Luke 19, verse 10? We haven't gotten there yet, but you probably know it by heart. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus is a seeking Savior. He seeks out his people. He did not come to set before you, people of God, the possibility of salvation. He earnestly and deliberately seeks out his own. The demoniac was his, and he came for him. In Luke 15, you remember that he leaves the 99 sheep in the sheepfold to go and find the single, solitary, lost sheep. And we hear him say that he does so. What does he say? Until he find it. Until he finds his lost, he will be relentless in going after them. Believer, if you are saved, can you not rejoice today? It is because Jesus sought you out. He came for you specifically until he found you. You are not randomly, so to speak, in the kingdom of God. You are not there just because you happened to be at a church service one day or a friend opened the scriptures to you, but Jesus deliberately used those means to bring salvation to you because he knew what he was doing when he came to you and how this deepens our assurance of faith, of salvation if we are his. In Mark's gospel, you would read that it was his compassion on the demoniac that freed him. It was the love of God that sought this man out. This demoniac did not seek out Jesus. He had no sense or sensibility to do anything of the kind. Our text says he was not in his right mind. The demons had clouded every portion of his mind. But Jesus comes to him out of love and compassion to transform his mind and to renew him. Same thing for you, believer, in the time ordained by God. He found you, and he saved you out of his love and had compassion on you. And if this man's captivity is the point of contact with us in our sin, Christ seeking this man is the point of contact for you who believe. And for you who do not yet believe here, perhaps this is the point of contact for you today. Maybe this is the day Jesus has come to seek and save you if you would turn to him. Even as he sought me out in a church service about 13 years ago, he perhaps is seeking you out too. But now, let us consider the demons having seen why Jesus is there. Let's consider the demons and what they might teach us over the nature of sin and how it is as our captor. First note that sin and Satan are absolutely no match at all for our Savior. Our singular Savior Against a legion of demons, our Savior is not intimidated. He does not exert any great effort. You know, if this was like mythology, right, you might expect this long protracted battle between the demigod, 
right? And Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not a demigod. I'm just using what mythology uses. Demigod against these demons and powers of hell, right? May have raged on for hours or days or months. But before the Son of God, what can the demons do? They can only tremble. Verses 28 and 29. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. You see that? With the word of his power, Jesus has power over the demons. Doesn't have to do anything else but speak a command. But when I read it for the first time, really, I've read this many times, I was struck by the demon's plea. I beseech thee, torment me not. For a very long time, these demons had tormented this poor man, hadn't they? But now they say, torment me not. In that, you need to see how profoundly hypocritical sin is. If love is without hypocrisy, Romans 12, 9, sin is contrary to all that is love. There is no love in sin. There is only hypocrisy such as this. I will torment this man, but don't you dare torment me, Jesus, Son of God. And in verse 31, and they besought him, here's their plea, that he would not command them to go out into the deep, that is the lake. The demons understand that there is a day coming when they will be cast into the lake that is truly prepared for them, the lake that is called fire. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10. Hell is where these demons are ultimately destined. And it's also the place where those of us who do not turn to Jesus for salvation will go too. That's because it's the just reward for our sin. Though we are under sin's dominion, let us be clear, we enjoy our sin as much as the demons do. And we are culpable for that ourselves. Now, the difference here that causes us to rejoice is salvation is utterly impossible for any demon. The demons will all be damned. None will be saved. But you, sinners, can be of good cheer because the eternal Son of God was manifest and he did not take on the nature of angels but of men to save men and not demons. You need to rejoice today that God in his love has extended salvation to all men who would come to Christ. Salvation is not impossible for any of you here, as impossible as it is for the demons. It is not impossible for any sinners, no matter what they have done. You may have even tormented and tortured another man, as the demons did, but you are not outside the possibility of salvation in Christ. By faith in Jesus, as we will see in Hebrews 7 tonight, you can be saved and saved to the uttermost. You can be saved from the torments of the lake of fire and translated from fire to the fullness of joy in heaven. But yours must be a true saving faith and not the faith of demons that cannot save. James 2.19 says that demons have a certain kind of faith and you're actually seeing it here in the text. They profess 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Yet they are not saved. What's the difference? These things are vital for us to know. I think right off the bat, you can see there's nothing in their heart to adore the Savior and to trust in Him. Is there? The demons do not have a saving faith. They do not trust and hope in Jesus for salvation. Uh, The three components of a true saving faith, as uh, theologians have discovered out of the Scripture, and this cannot be a sermon on that, so I'll, I'll summarize, is that we are to have knowledge, we are to have assent to the truth, knowledge of the truth of God, assent to the truth of God, but also, and this is the part that demons do not have, they have knowledge and they assent to the truth, but they don't have trust. They don't have trust. Boys and girls, that's important for you. The word does not produce trust in their hearts. They know, right, we've just seen in this text, they know certain truths that we ought to know to be saved. They know Jesus is the Son of God. All of you who are saved have to know that. You have to believe that. They know there is a coming day of judgment, that there is a lake of fire. You have to know that. But what they don't do is they don't trust in Jesus Christ. They don't hope in Jesus Christ. They don't love and adore Jesus Christ. The heart is vitally important. Romans 10, 8 through 10. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, okay, that is what the demons do. But here's the next part. And shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You are to cast all of your hopes and all of your trust, not just in the mind, but in the heart, on Jesus Christ. That is saving faith. Neither do the demons repent of their sin. They don't cast themselves upon Jesus for mercy. Later on, Jesus says that the man that is saved, later in, in, in Luke's gospel, says the man that is saved says what? God have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the man who is saved. Have you cast yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy? That is saving faith. You must admit your sinfulness, friends, to be saved. You must admit your need. I need the mercy of God in Christ. So have you done this? Have you received him by faith? Have you trusted him in your heart? You must. Or else your faith is no better than that of the demons. And if Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 demonstrated our total captivity to sin, its following verses show us why Jesus comes to us and why Jesus came to the demoniac. Bless the Lord for the following verses in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Why does Jesus come to the man? Because God is rich in mercy. I don't think the child of God can dwell on words like this enough. For his great love, not just love, his great love for his elect, 
This is why Jesus gets in the boat. He goes through the storm and he comes and seeks and saves this lost man out of the great love and grace of God for his people. You see here, friends, salvation is a free gift from God out of love. By grace ye are saved. What could this man in his chains do to contribute to salvation? Nothing. Nothing at all. All of his salvation was of Jesus. And you and I must disavow any thought that in any way, any bit of our salvation is contingent on us, or we have contributed in any way to our salvation. All of it is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And with a mere word, our Savior cast thousands of demons into the swine as refuse. And though the man was in bondage for a long time, right? In the twinkling of an eye, he was set free from his bondage and he was set free forever. Not only are the demons gone, but the man was reborn and was renewed. And this, too, is something that we have in common with him if we are believers. Let's consider this as our last heading, a renewed man. Verse 35, look at the work of the Lord. Then they went out to see what was done. What was done, friends? came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Do you see the tremendous reversal of the man's condition? Once he was as naked as a beast, but here he is clothed, seated at the feet of Jesus Christ, and the Bible says in his right mind. The transformative effect of the gospel is astonishing. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what creature? A new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that's what you see here, isn't it? Consider the elements of this man's new life as we considered the man's old life before. He was clothed. Once he was naked. You see in the Bible, throughout the Bible, without Christ you are naked before God. There is no righteousness to call your own. And you and I try to cover up ourselves as Adam did after the fall, as he tried to cover his nakedness before God with those fig leaves. You tried to cover up your sin, whether outwardly as the Pharisees do, with an outward show of religion or with a a pretense of good works, surely all my lies and all my hatred, all my deception, all my hatred of God, surely a few small paltry good works will take care of it. No. God says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And you can think of this man naked before God. Isaiah 64, 6. What you and I need is an alien righteousness. You and I must be clothed and covered by the Son of God, by Jesus Christ. You need Christ's righteousness to cover your sinfulness, to clothe you so that his perfection would become your covering. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you that have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Christ covering the sinner. When you are in Christ, united to him by faith, What he has done is he has clothed you, child of God. He has covered you with his own righteousness. He calls it his wedding garment. 
that will admit us to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he says, without it, you will be cast into that lake that the demons feared. Matthew 22, 11 through 13. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The spiritual garment of Christ's own righteousness is what averts God's wrath for our sin. All of you, any of you, can have it, friends, as a gift. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. All of our filthiness put on the Savior on the cross, whereas he gives to us his blessed Garments of righteousness is perfection. And believer, what you must know about Satan, what you must know about the devil, is that he will try to accuse you over your sin when you sin. To torment you in a different way from which he tormented the demoniac. You know, on the one hand, you remember Satan is called the tempter, who tempts us and allures us with the supposed beauty of sin. But on the other hand, what is he called? He is called the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? Uh, who accuses us day and night before God in Revelation 12.10. You need to be wise to this diabolical scheme of his. You know, he'll, he'll lure you to sin. He'll hold it out before you. But when you fall into it, he will accuse you and say, you are filthy, too filthy for God. You must not go to God. Can God really be merciful on a sinner like you? And in that time, if you believe on the Lord, you must look to the fact that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When Satan opposed Joshua, the high priest, you need to see how the Lord dealt with Satan. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angels. That is before the angel. That is us in our filthy rags of unrighteousness. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment or clothing. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. How was Satan rebuked by the Lord? He took Joshua's filthy rags off of him, stripped him of them, and was clothed with righteousness. The Lord rebuked Satan. And Satan is utterly silenced. What a thing it is, friend, the day you believe that he stripped you of your filthy rags and he clothed you with the righteousness of God, right? And having the righteousness of Christ, how could Satan ever, ever accuse us of anything before the throne of God? Because he would have to accuse the Son of God. And we saw how well that went for him in the temptation of Christ. You can say 
What can you possibly accuse me of any more, Satan? Because you accuse a man covered or woman covered in the righteousness of Christ. And the accuser of our brethren is utterly silenced by the Lord. And so if your sin wounds you, yes, you repent of your sin. You turn from it and you turn to the Lord for forgiveness. And if you know that you have the righteousness of Christ covering you, remind your soul of it. Oh, my soul, remember what I am covered. I am clothed with the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ and the very perfection of the Son of God that we have been discovering In the gospel, all of it is mine. And because Jesus is my righteousness, Satan has nothing on me. Satan has nothing to accuse me of God. And you say, see, O my soul, the Son of God was manifest to destroy the accusatory works of the devil as well. And praise God for it. Also, we read, I'll try to cover a couple things more brief than this, that he was now in his right mind his mind transformed by Christ. What does Romans 12.2 say? Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. When the Holy Spirit converts us and, and, and gives us faith, our mind changes, doesn't it? Uh, and this is what, uh, in the Greek language, boys and girls, we call metanoia, which is repentance, which means the change of mind in the Greek language. How is the mind changed? Well, before, while your shame was your glory, now you see sin as awful. Now you see sin as abhorrent. You see the beauty of holiness for the first time, and you see the glory of Christ, and you see the wickedness of sin. And the law that once merely were as chains to restrain us, when Christ sets us free, we turn to the law and we don't see it as bondage anymore. But instead with David, we say, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Why? Because our mind has been changed as we are repentant. We see the beauty now of loving God above all. We see the glory of loving our neighbor as ourself. And the law... It doesn't serve to save us, no. It doesn't serve to earn us merit with the Almighty. But our mind desires to please God by it. And our mind has been changed to see that to love sin is to be like the devil. And in a way, I want you to always consider this, boys and girls. Um, Sin is insanity. Because the devil is insane. Have you ever thought of how insane the devil is? He's not stupid, but he is insane. James 2.19 says, The demons know God is one. They know God. They know his power. They know his omnipotence. They know his holiness. They even know what the end of the book portends for them, that we will be thrown into the lake of fire. You see that here. Yet Satan, this fallen angel, thinks he can war against God. That is utter insanity. But that is the insanity of the sinner who thinks he can shake his fist at the Almighty. The sinner who does not flee to Christ is not in their right mind. You hear unbelievers say this, right? Who is God to tell me what to do? That is insanity. When our mind is renewed, we admit that God is to be served as our Creator. He made me, I say. My mind changes. Of course, I must serve the Creator who is blessed over all. It would be stupid and insane to not do so. So, 
Our mind changes in these ways, and we could say much more on that. But here, where was the man found? And maybe this is the thing. This is the thing that really blesses us the most. Once he lived among the dead. He lived in the tombs, those dreadful, bone-filled places. But now he was found at the feet of Jesus. This is the place. This is the place where every man or woman who is born again has a desire to be and must have a desire to be without a desire to go back to the tombs. This man did not have a desire to go back to his uncleanness. Jesus had found him. Jesus had saved him. Jesus had turned him from darkness to light. Really, the question is this simple. Where else would you want to be but at the feet of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be at his feet? That's the posture, first of all, of a worshiper. All throughout the scripture, you see men and women who fall at the feet of Jesus, blessing him, worshiping him. But it's also the posture of a disciple. You sit at the feet of your master. This is the place you ought to be. And how many in the scripture, when they came to Jesus, when Jesus came to them, they clung to him. They clung to him. They clung to him in learning and in worship. Those that love Jesus are found at his feet, even as we are right now. This is where you ought to be. This is where you must be in places like this church, in the word, in prayer, at the feet of Jesus Christ, not just on the Lord's day, but every single day of your life. Because that is what an eternity will be like, at the feet of Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb, we will cry forever. In this man, then, we find the transforming effect of the gospel, causing us to be born again and renewed, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4, 23 to 24. Have you seen, maybe you can read Ephesians on the Lord's Day today, how the man's salvation parallels the very arc of salvation in Ephesians. From captivity to sin and Satan, to the loving kindness of the Lord coming to us to free us, to a new man who is born again by the Holy Spirit, he serves as a picture of what the Lord does for all of you who are saved by Christ. And whatever sin you are under, friend, you need to see here hope. Jesus can free you from anything. You are not beyond hope. Anything that you that binds you today, sin, Satan, whatever it is, the world, Christ can free you of it, and Christ can cleanse you of it all. Well, verse 40, we'll end on this, says that when Jesus returned, the people on the other side gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. May that be in your heart today as well. May you gladly receive Jesus Christ, because it's this simple, only one who is not in their right mind would reject him. And if you have gladly received Christ, you can say, oh, what a Savior, what a blessed Savior I have who has freed me from my total captivity, so much evil, so much misery. Bless him and praise him today and continue to look to Jesus with an assurance that he will save you to the uttermost, that he will take you to your heavenly home that he is preparing, believer, not the tomb, but heaven itself. And the Bible promises what? That the good work that he has begun he will bring to completion. As was said of Boaz, for the man will not rest until he has finished the thing. We'll have to pick up the text more next time 
especially the Lord's commandment to the man, Go and tell thy friends what great things the Lord hath done for thee. This warrants an entire sermon, so let's leave Luke here for today and praise God that he has sent the Son of Man into the world to free us from the works of the devil and save us to the uttermost. Amen. Please rise for prayer if you are able. Our Father and our God, how it cheers our heart, Father, to see the Son of God. How we despair, Father, over our total captivity to sin, a captivity that we enjoyed like the Israelites enjoyed Egypt, it seems, even though it was such a tormentor to them. Let us return to Egypt, they often said. So, Father, let us remember that if the Son has set us free, we are free indeed from a bondage that we ourselves could never free ourselves from. Help us to glory in that. Help us to see sin for what it is, Father. Let your people run away from sin. Let them flee from it, as uh, Joseph did from Potiphar's wife, and say, how can I do this great evil against my God? Give us grace for help in our time of need. And if any here are under the captivity of sin, would you cause this to be the day of salvation for them? Would you manifest your loving kindness to them? Would the Son of God, by his Holy Spirit, open their hearts and burst the bonds of their captivity to sin and Satan? That no longer would they call uh, Satan their father, but they would call you our Heavenly Father, Father, and know that they will end up in their Father's uh, uh, dwelling place. O Lord, do this not for our sake, but for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.